right. Uh, I forgot one announcement. Um, that if we could have a few guys uh, stick after the service for a couple minutes and help stack chairs. This is the last week that we have preschool play day, and so it'll be the last uh, um, last Sunday um, for the foreseeable future anyway that we'll need some guys to help uh, stack some chairs. Um, as we uh, are about to dig into the, the Word, um, you can open up to, to John 3.16 for a moment. Um, it's where we'll be parking today, but... Uh, Going back and thinking about um, the the events of, of last uh, Sunday afternoon, um, our our journey in ministry has been uh, fairly crazy. Um, when I finished seminary in uh, 2010, um, our desire was to to get back to Minnesota, and I felt the God, the call of God on my life to to be a preacher. I had been a public school music teacher and. I've been a worship leader for many years before that, and I was, to be completely honest with you, I was scared of the call to be a preacher. And I, I ran from that call for quite a while, applying for really just music ministry gigs. And so uh, there were a number of times when I would apply for churches, I can think of one in Ohio and one in um, one Brookings, South Dakota, where the same exact thing happened, where I got far down the way and as I was talking with the pastor during the interviews and after the interviews, uh, one in Ohio said, um, Mike, I, 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 you're a gifted musician, but uh, you need to be a pastor. You need to be a preacher. And so we're not going to push you any further along in the process because I really feel that you need to be a pastor. And I didn't listen to him in that, so I started applying for more jobs and I applied for this church called uh, Bethel Baptist in, in Brookings, South Dakota. And I was the, the, the runner-up for that position and, and the pastor called me after they had made their decision, and, which was very nice. That doesn't often happen in churches. They don't often call you and tell you they're not going to take you, but uh, that was a very kind thing for him to do. And you know, he asked me if I had any questions and I said, I don't have any questions, just what can I do better in the, inter in the interview process? And his response was, well, um, we didn't go with you because we know that you're going to be a pastor. We know that in two years, you're going to leave this place. You're not going to be a worship pastor anymore. You're going you're to be a preacher. That's what you need to be. So we're not going to take you for that reason. And so from there, I decided to start applying for uh, pastoral positions. One of them that worked out was where we were in Wahoo, Nebraska at Calvary Church there. One of them that didn't work out when we applied in 2010 was this church called Emanuel Baptist Church in Moore, Minnesota. And so uh, for years, Emanuel had been on my heart. It had been on uh, our heart. I had visited the website frequently, not all the time, but you know, quite often just checking in, seeing what's going on, and praying for Emanuel Baptist Church. And um, lo and behold, in 2014, uh, a position was open as associate pastor um, we were in a, in a place in our church there where uh, the church was ready to take off. Uh, I was not the guy to lead them there to where they needed to be. And so we were looking for other places uh, to go, and we saw this Emanuel Baptist Church open up. And so we applied, and, and, uh, and everything went so good. Everything worked well together. It was, uh, it was really a good, uh, it was a good fit. And so uh, God saw fit to, to bring us here. And uh, circumstances changed uh, in the last year, and um, 
uh, Mike Herzog obviously went to, uh, to go to the, the federal uh, prison system where I think he will flourish and I think he's, he's doing a great job. And um, with that, uh, I expressed my interest in uh, the pastoral position here. And through the last year and through um, uh, praying and seeking the Lord and, um, and all that, we, uh, Julie and I feel very, very confident that God has called us to be here. And so um, I am joyfully... Joyfully, we'll take the, the position of senior pastor. Um, we don't know when the start date is or anything like that or, you know, all those little details. Um, my assumption is, and I haven't talked to Daryl yet about this, that this will probably be my last time preaching as, as the associate pastor. Um, and whatever the um, schedule looks like from here on out, I don't know. But uh, it's going to be good. We're looking forward to it. We know that God has great things in store. And I'm looking forward to linking arms with, with all of you and as we can link arms in unity and go forward in the grace of the Lord to, um, to really make, make a, an impact in this church and, and, and Lord willing in this community. Um, and so uh, I'm excited. I hope you're excited. And um, with that aside, more importantly, we need, to, uh, we need to worship the Lord through the preaching of his word. And, uh, and through the proclamation of the word. So we're in John 3.16, and would you uh, bow your head with me uh, for just a moment. God, you're great, you're worthy to be praised. You love us more than we can even imagine. And so now, Lord, would you open up our ears, would you open up our eyes, and would you uh, illuminate your word to us as we look into your great love that you have for us, Lord. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> well, it's been, it's been said that our culture is, is advertised almost to our ruin. You can go pretty much anywhere in the world at any time and you can get hit with an advertisement more than you think, whether it be a website that you visit, whether it be driving on the highway, seeing any sort of, of billboard, uh, whether it be a newspaper, a television commercial, a, a, a t-shirt that someone is wearing, or a, a hat that someone is wearing. Uh, it could be a symbol on a, on a bumper sticker, it could be a road sign or whatever the case is. Our culture is shaped by advertisements and the creative power of those advertisers. In fact, people in advertising are, are so understanding of us that they know the psychology of how to say things, how to craft things, where to place an advertisement, colors to use, shapes to use in order to get our attention, in order for us to, uh, to buy into what they want. Many internet companies are tracking the clicks that you make so that they can know the kind of websites that you visit, the kind of items that you shop for. For example, um, there was an item the other day that I went on Amazon and I, and I looked uh, at that item and I, well, I, maybe I'll put that away for a little bit, but then I go onto Facebook and then on the sidebar of the Facebook is that exact item that I was just looking at on Facebook. If you're looking at a Kindle Fire, you can look at a Kindle Fire for a couple minutes and you may in the next week or so get an email from Amazon saying, remember that Kindle you were looking at? Well, we have plenty of them. They'll suggest products for you. Uh, advertising is a powerful force in our culture. And when I did a Google search on how many advertisements we're faced with each day, 
the average number I got was 3,000 advertisements a day that were hit with. And now again, I'm not a mathematician, but calculators are very helpful. Uh, that's th 21,000 advertisements in a week, 93,000 advertisements in a 31-day month. That amounts to 1,095,000 uh, advertisements a year. A year. That's just average. That would mean that some get more and some get less. We see the effects of it are clear. When I'm driving along the road and I see a golden arch, suddenly I want a burger and a fry. I'm walking through a mall and you see a, a picture of a cold, sweaty can of Sprite. Think, wow, this mall is really hot. I'm thirsty. When I see a Nike swoosh sign, I want to start jogging. It's against my nature too, folks, but it's an advertisement. <laughs> In a world where everybody is trying to get the mess their message across, we need to remember that there's only one message that the world needs to hear. It's been waved at countless sporting games, and perhaps it's the most famous Bible verse in the world, and yet our culture receives the news about a new iPhone with more excitement than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The message that a holy God who hates sin and his wrath is upon sin loves the world and the people in the world so much that he sent his son to die so that they would not have to. So this message that I want to revive in your hearts this, this morning is a familiar passage to all of us. But we need to kindle it uh, anew, and that is John 3.16 that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. It may be the most famous passage in the Bible, but there are really three things that we can, that we can take from uh, that passage today. And that's the first thing we need to do is we need to marvel at what God did. Marvel at what God did. You know, the one thing that, that I, uh, the abs I absolutely love about our kids is that uh, they don't often forget who a gift is from. And one of two things will often happen. They will come to us and they will remind us who they got this gift from. Well, do you remember where I got this from? I got this from Grandpa. I got this from Cousin Chris. I got this from whoever it was. So they remind us where they got uh, those gifts from. Or if they don't remember, they will ask us, can you tell me again, who did this come from? And we'll remind them. And it's a neat thing for a parent to see their children not only enjoying the gifts that they receive, but also having those gifts be a vehicle by which they're thankful for the people that give them, uh, give those gifts to them. In our text this morning, we see that God is a giver. He is a giver of good gifts. 
This is none other than God Almighty Himself who created the heavens and the earth and all things in existence merely by speaking words. It is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. And, and James chapter 1, verse 17 tells us that all good gifts come from God. It tells us that uh, he, is, he is the giver who gives us the Holy Spirit. That when we trust in Christ, He is the down payment that God's work is in our hearts. God gives us justification, Romans 3.24 tells us. He gives us the gift of salvation, as Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 tells us. He gives us the gift of eternal life. He gives us spiritual gifts, which are abilities and talents by which we can love others. God graciously gives us the breath that we are taking right now. It is God's gift that you woke up this morning. It is God's gift that you were able to get up and come to church. It is this God who answers prayer. And not only answers prayer, but delights to do so. In John 14, verses 13 through 14, Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And James chapter 4, 3 reminds us that uh, we don't get because we don't ask. We forget that God is a good giver. And He is willing and able to give us good gifts. He gives us gift, gifts because He loves us and because He desires to do so. In Romans chapter 11, Paul tells us that God's gifts are irrevocable. So whether or not you, you use up you can't use up God's gifts. You can't screw up in such a way that God is going to one day just take it from you and say, oh, you screwed it up. It ain't yours anymore. His gifts are irrevocable. He is the God who loves us. And in 2 Corinthians 9, he tells us that we ought to praise Him for His good gifts. So do you thank God for His kindness this morning? Have you thanked Him and praised Him that He not only gives you that, that breath that you're taking right now, but has also given you all things in life, as well as salvation and a future deliverance? God gives because it's in His nature to do so. In Matthew chapter 7 and in Luke chapter 11, Jesus is talking uh, about a good father. And when a, good, when, when a son comes up to him and asks him for a loaf of bread, Jesus says that a good father doesn't give him a, a rock or a snake or whatever it is. He gives them what they need. I love giving my children good gifts. I love seeing them take joy in it. And uh, I love seeing them take joy in it because there's a sense in which it brings us closer together. There's a good connection there. 
In our passage, the the good gift that God gives us is Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's own son, whom he cherishes more than anything else in the universe. In Matthew chapter 3, when Jesus is is baptized, he came up out of the water. The heavens open up. The Spirit of God comes down like a dove, and a voice speaks from heaven and says, This is my Son, with whom I am well pleased. In Isaiah chapter 53, Isaiah says that God is a Father who watched Jesus grow up on earth, and he says, like a young shoot. He watched Jesus raise up and and become a man. And uh, as he watched Jesus grow up, it's almost with fatherly pride. And you can see in Luke chapter 2, verse 40, it says that that Jesus, as he was growing, he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and among men. God loved to watch his little boy grow. But when God gave Jesus up, He also gave up a piece of himself. Jesus said on many occasions, he told the Pharisees, I and the Father are one. You can't have one without the the other. Jesus is in the Father, and the Father is in him. They are one together. And you can add the Holy Spirit in there for a Trinitarian relationship, that they are equal in their deity. They are distinct in their persons, but they are one in unity. There's such a close connection and union with the Father and Son that they are one. God also gave Jesus when he laid foundations, uh, the foundation for the plan of salvation. Scripture tells us that God had the plan to send Christ on our behalf before the foundation of the world. You see, in Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve have sinned, Eve took of the fruit, she gave Adam some of the fruit, and God comes and he he judges Adam and Eve, but he also gives them a promise. It's what theologians call the proto-evangelium. You don't need to know that word, but what that means is it's the very first time in Scripture that God gives us the gospel. Because as he is describing to Adam and Eve, he is talking to the snake and he is saying, you are going to have offspring that are going to come forth from you, basically Satan's children, the ones that attack us as believers. But he tells Eve, an offspring is going to come from you. He is going to, you are going to bruise his heel, but he is going to crush your head. And in that, God is telling Satan that one is going to come who is going to save the world from their sins and undo the work of Satan. And we know that in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It was a plan from the very beginning. So God gave Jesus also when Jesus came to the earth. In John chapter 114, it says that God made his dwelling among man in Jesus. And Jesus said that he came to give life and to give it abundantly. God also gave Jesus when he suffered. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3, reminds us to consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. In his fantastic book, um, Never Walk Away, Pastor Crawford Loritz writes an interesting story about his, his father. It's a bit lengthy, so, so stay with me because it's a good story. 
He says, as I recall, it was pretty early in the afternoon on a very warm day in the summer of 1960. Since he worked nights, my father was home during the day. The school playground ran summer programs complete with a recreation director to oversee all the kids' activities. I was involved in a game of softball when a truck came through the playground to carry away the residue from cleaning out the old coal furnace in the bottom of the school. When the truck came by, the softball rolled behind the truck. In the past, some of the kids had jumped on the back of the truck to catch a ride. When I went to recover the ball, the recreation director, a man in his late 20s or early 30s, looked up and assumed that I was trying to hitch a ride on the back of the truck. He began yelling at me. Before I knew it, he was telling me to leave the playground. And I protested. I tried to explain to him that I, had been trying to, that I had not been trying to get on the back of the truck. And at that point, he started toward me. And rather than allowing me to walk away from the playground on my own, he grabbed me, he, uh, he, tw he twisted my arm in a hammerlock behind me and literally pushed me down the steps from the playground. I suppose that there were 10 or 12 concrete steps that he pushed me down. I remember the embarrassment of the incident because it was in front of my friends. And through tears, I told him, I'm going home to tell my father. He must have thought that that was an empty threat. I was, uh, we lived only a few blocks from the playground, and I was crying frantically when I, when I ran up to the building, up three flights of stairs to our apartment, and through the door, Pop saw me and said, Boy, what in the world is wrong with you? Then I told him the story of the recreation director twisting my arm and pushing me down the steps, and Pop was livid. I will never forget his face. He stood to his feet and said, Now, boy, I want to make sure that you're telling me the truth. You didn't do anything. Now, he actually touched you and pushed you down the stairs? And I explained it all to him again, and Pop nodded and said, You come with me. He grabbed me by the hand, and we went down to the playground. And as we went to the playground, my father stopped to ask a couple of my friends their version of the incident, and they told him the same story that I had told him. Then, with me in tow, he briskly walked to the recreation director and stood toe-to-toe -to -toe with him and asked, Now, sir, did you put your hand on my son? The man became very indignant with him, and he answered, Yes, I did, as if to say, what are you going to do about it? Well, that was the wrong answer. I'd never known Pop to be violent, but he was a very strong man. He grabbed the man by his shirt with both hands and literally lifted him off his feet, slammed him against the face and said, you will never put your hands on him again. I was petrified. I had never seen the side of my father. I'd never seen him hit or touch anybody. I suppose my eyes were as big as saucers. My heart was racing. I actually thought my father was going to punch this man's lights out. Now, though a father today may or may not be able to get away with such a response, there's something in us, especially us dads, that get it. So here is a man that is willing to do whatever is necessary to protect his children. 
But, then we look at John 3.16. And we see God doesn't do that. God does not go to his people that are, suffer, that are making Jesus suffer at their hands and say, you will not touch Jesus. You will not do it. Rather, Isaiah 53.10 tells us that it was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus. In fact, in the NASB, it translates it by saying that it pleased God to crush Jesus. Jesus, in Matthew 27, when he's hanging on the cross, says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus felt the weight of a son who had been abandoned by his father. And it makes us question, why would anyone do that? What kind of father is this? And I want to argue that even in the seeming act of neglect and, and abuse, God is both fully loving of Jesus and you and me. But we can't do that without first marveling at what God did. But he sent his son on this earth to be crushed on our behalf. So let's look at how this works out a little further by, by our second point, and that is rejoicing in what God did. And why God did it, I'm sorry. Rejoice in why God did it. When it comes to God, love is in his very nature. 1 John 4, 8 tells us that it is love that springs out from everything that he does. In the Old Testament, there's a word to describe this covenant love, and it's the Hebrew word chesed. And this word chesed is very hard to translate into English because there is not a direct uh, English word that can summarize this. Uh, some English translations, the ESV, uh, calls it his steadfast love. In other translations, they translate it as, as God's faithful love or his loving kindness. But perhaps the best translation that I have seen actually comes from a children's Bible. Uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones wrote a children's Bible called the Jesus Storybook Bible. And when she describes the chesed of the Lord, she says that it is God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreakable, always and forever love. Try translating that into your Bible. Everything that God does flows from this chesed. And it and his love flows through it, whether it be in his mercy or even in his judgment. His love meets the situation that our world is in. It meets the desperate need for the moral redemption that our culture is in. And it meets the need of you and me for the forgiveness of our sins. God's love is so wide that it, it meets the enormous scope of humanity. Remember what Romans 3.23 says. It says that all have sinned. There's not one of us 
that have jumped the fence of sinful nature and jumped into perfection. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it displays our inability to do anything about it. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Paul writes that we were dead in our sins and our trespasses in which we once walked according to uh, the patterns of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit which is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Galatians 3.10 tells us that all who rely on on the works of the law are bound under a curse. And that's to say that all of us who think that just by being good and doing the right things gets us anywhere, it doesn't. Our sinful condition makes us completely unable to do anything to overcome it. But... God's love meets us in that need in the person of Jesus Christ. He did it because, as our text says here, that God loved the world. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, maybe you know that chapter because it's cited at almost every single wedding I've ever been to, where it describes all these virtues of what love is. I would argue that those uh, qualities that Paul is describing in 1 Corinthians 13 is not necessarily a set of virtues that we all can or should attain to, but rather what Paul is doing is he is describing the very character of God. God is patient. God is kind. God is not arrogant. He does not boast. Though he was patient, he knew when the time was right to send Christ on our behalf. Last week I had said that we tend to love subjectively, meaning that oftentimes we will love in order to find out what we can get back in return whether it be a feeling or whether it be whatever it is. And oftentimes we tend to pick and choose who we love. Well, that person's worthy of our care and consideration. Well, that person, that doesn't, person doesn't deserve any time of my day at all. We pick and choose Our love is incredibly subjective, but God's is not. His love is for the whole world. There's not one person in this world that God does not want to come to repentance and faith. There is not one person, and going deeper than that, there is not one sin, one mistake, one regret that you may have in your life that is greater than God's love for you. He is willing and able to redeem us and bring us to him regardless of what we've done, regardless of what we've said, regardless if if that thing keeps coming back time and time again that we just don't know how to handle it. God can redeem us. Christ's work is sufficient for it. And we ought to celebrate that love. We celebrate birthdays. We celebrate holidays. Life milestones. But do we ever really celebrate and take joy and exult in God's great love for us? 
We ought to. We need to rejoice in why God sent Jesus. It's because of his great love. And third and finally, we ought to believe in God's purpose for it. Believe in God's purpose for it. We must fully embrace, we must fully believe, we must fully trust, and we must fully rely on the truth of the gospel. This is not historical fiction. This is not some cleverly designed myth in order to uh, convey some spiritual truth. We must put our absolute trust in the truth of Christ. Not many people, not many of us realize how much trust you and I live on every single day. We live by trust. We live by faith when we go out to eat trusting that that food is prepared to the correct temperature. We live by faith that the architects and the, uh, the contractors who built this roof built it in such a way that it will not come collapsing down on us. We trust the mechanic who put on the new tires to make sure that those tires are on tight. You're trusting that the seat that you are sitting on right now will hold you up. A couple of weeks ago, I was talking to a lady who was trying to make a point to me that um, us evangelical churches are judgmental when we try to discern a credible profession of faith when, when someone is seeking church membership. I understood her point which was, if someone simply just says that they believe in Jesus, that that is enough. And my response to her was, ma'am, if you were on an airplane that was going down, and the wall was lined with parachute packs, is it simply enough to believe that those are parachute packs? Of course not. No one in their right mind would be saved if they just intellectually knew that those are parachute packs and that they would open up when a string is pulled. Rather, one must put on that parachute, trust that it will open up, and jump. And in the same way, it's not just enough to believe that Jesus was a historical figure. Scripture tells us that we must put on the Lord Jesus Christ and trust in His work on our behalf in the same way that we would trust a parachute to save us from falling out of an airplane. Look again in our verse and see the scope of this faith. Whoever believes, it doesn't matter if you were born and raised in Minnesota or, or if you're from the deepest jungle in the Amazon, it, it doesn't matter if you grew up in the church, and it does not matter if you were a practicing Muslim for 50 years and then come to Jesus. When we come to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance, He will save us. Look at the result. First, negatively. 
the Scripture says that whoever believes in Him should not perish. Now, you're very familiar with this word perish because you've got stuff in your refrigerator and you've got stuff in your cupboards that perish all the time. To perish means to rot, to decay, to spoil. And that is exactly what sin will do in your life. In the now and definitely in the future. And in this verse, Jesus is giving us the remedy. Trust. Believe. It's all the same word in Greek. He also describes it positively. He says that whoever believes will have everlasting, or another word for that is eternal life. He's not talking necessarily about our physical bodies here, but in in John 17, he defines what eternal life is. Eternal life is knowing Jesus and the Father who sent him. Eternal life is that we would live with God forever. In John chapter 14, in the beginning of that chapter, Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God and also believe in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you unto myself, that where I am you may be also. Eternal life also brings eternal joy. Psalm 1611 tells us that you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. Fullness of joy. So believe, trust, rely on God's purposes and for sending his son to give you eternal life. Today, Who knows how many advertisements you've already been hit with. But more than likely, you'll end up encountering about 3,000 advertisements today alone. Every one of them is promising something, is asking for your trust, as well as your money, by the way. But the one message that we consistently need to hear is the one that is true to its promise, that is free of charge and needing total trust that God so loved the world that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That, friends, is a message that you and I can invest in today and for all of eternity. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your grace is sufficient for us. We thank you that you love the world enough to send us Christ. And so, Father, I pray for two different things. Father, I pray for those of us that have been Christians for a while, but maybe might be um, realizing that we're um, not walking the path that we should. Would you kindle that flame in our heart this morning that we would return to you and be set ablaze for you? Father, I also pray 
for the person here that may not know you, that knows about you, that knows about you being a real person, but has not made the attempt to form a relationship with you. May that person know that you, Lord, have done the work to make that relationship possible by sending your son on their behalf to take the punishment that, for their sins and to rise again to everlasting life, to, to pave the way for us who trust in him. And so, Father, would you do that work in our hearts and in our minds, but also in our lives, in how we live. May it be for your glory and for your good, so that the world that we're about to enter into as we walk out these doors would know that your love is great and it is calling them to you. And it's in Christ's name that I ask this. Amen. Well, would you stand with us as we sing one more song together?